I have never met someone who is wildly successful who is not obsessed with the game of business. So your job as you're younger should be to find a way to become obsessed with not necessarily the outcome, not that I want to just be a painter and artist and et cetera. It's like learn to love the game. And the second you can learn to love the game, everything gets a lot easier. Welcome to A Better Life with Brandon Turner. That is me, where world-class guests share their wisdom on building a better life. Join me as we explore the habits, the actions, and the beliefs that have guided their journey with the aim of helping you apply those lessons to your own. We Cody, you're awesome. Thanks for being here today. Uh, like I said, I was not going to start that way. And here I am starting that way. <laughs> uh, I want to go into your story. So you, from what I understand, I've been following you on social media forever. And I know a little bit about you. You have, I think, 26-ish companies that you currently own. Yep. Over 100 companies you've invested in. Married to a former Navy SEAL. You got a lot of crazy, cool things going on. But I want to go back way before that. Mm-hmm. Like before all of that, and you were a big deal in the you know, hundreds of thousands of Instagram, whatever, and where were you before that? Take me back to another place in your life earlier when you were maybe at your lowest. Yeah, well, I, I think before I did anything in finance, I did something totally different, which is I was a journalist covering human trafficking along the U.S.-Mexico border. That was like my first real job. Mm. I did a bunch of internships. I think I've worked since I've, I was 15. I've knocked on doors and sold wallpaper, the whole thing. I think my most interesting job was that I won an award from the Howard F. Buffett Foundation, which is Warren Buffett's kid. And he basically had this idea that humans create false borders that separate sort of our humanity. And so he gave a grant to a couple of students across the country to write stories about uh, borders. And so I, for my senior year of college, graduated early and lived in Juarez and El Paso and Ala Prieta and all of these towns along the U.S.-Mexico border, writing stories about drug trafficking, human trafficking, elderly people left along the border because Mm. they couldn't make it through border security, but their family did. And it was really eye-opening, actually, because, you know, we as Americans, we have such a narrow lens. Our aperture of the world is so tiny. And so we think that our difficulty is overwhelming. But if we just took a step back and went a few hours south, we might realize that things were quite a bit different than they seemed. And so I think I was really lucky to start early that way, because then when I you know, left human trafficking coverage and when I went into finance and people were like, oh, you have to work 12 hour yeah. days, <laughs> you know, you can't imagine I have to do so many steak dinners a week. I was like, seems fine. We're going to be okay. <laughs> you know? And so, uh, and so I went from this like kind of really deep, dark place of covering human struggle to the opposite, which is massive sort of wealth, luxury, greed yeah. on Wall Street. And that juxtaposition has stuck with me. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah, there's a great comedic bit. I think it's Louis C.K. Is that his name? Louis C.K.? Louis C.K.? Nailed it. Yeah, right. That says, uh, where you're talking about like, why find an airplane? You know, back when they first came out and he's, he's talking about how they got on there and the pilot came over the announcement and was like, hey, everyone, I got really exciting news. We have Wi-Fi today. And everyone cheered like, wow, they get up in the air and it doesn't work. And everyone just gets pissed. And they're like rioting on this airplane because their Wi-Fi is not working. He's like, you didn't have it 10 minutes ago. Like it never existed on this earth 10 minutes ago. And all of a sudden now it's all, you're already expecting it. And now it's not luxury anymore. Now it's just, that's part of your life. You should have that. And you're, it's unfair if you don't have that. Yeah. We lack context. Yeah. <laughs> like I think a lot, I mean, you have 
millions of followers on social, so do I. And I think it's an amazing social experiment into human psychology. Mm. If you can capture attention and eyeballs online, you kind of understand what drives humans, yeah. right? And so no matter what you do, understanding that will make you more successful, I think. But Louis C.K. also has another bit that's incredible, where he basically said, I'm going to show you what social media is in 30 seconds. And he goes, social media is this. You're in a square in a park, and a guy goes up to a signpost with a bunch of different flyers on them. And you could have a flyer for you know, painting classes, or you could have a flyer for a, a concert, or maybe there's a flyer for guitar lessons. And so the guy grabs the flyer for guitar lessons, rips off the little number at the bottom that says, call here for guitar lessons, dials the number in his phone. The guy picks up on the other end of the line, and he goes, you, I don't want guitar lessons. <laughs> and he goes, and that's social media. And I think that's exactly right. We humans like lose context for how the world works because everything's streaming at us sort of mm. continuously today. But I also think hugely influential can be social media. Yeah. Social media is nuts. And I, maybe we should dig on that a little bit right now. Like you are putting a lot of effort into social media. I am putting a lot of effort into social media. Why are you doing it? What's the point of growing this? Is this just ego? Is it you know, because it's probably a little bit that definitely drives me. But like, yeah. why, like, why do you do it? I started it in 2020 for a couple different reasons. One was I got a little bored because I wasn't doing roadshows and private equity like I was for the mm. past like 15 years running around every week. You know, the deal, yeah. raising money from investors, vetting deals. I was working like 60, 70, 80 hour weeks. And when COVID happened, I had a little bit of time and I actually got to take a step back and think for a minute. And in that period, I was trying to think about leverage. So basically, what is the highest leverage activity for my time that I could spend in this moment? And for most of my career, I hadn't thought that way. I had really sort of thought, what's the next step in my career? And then the next step. But there's a power play to determining how you want to spend your time. And if you can actually think, okay, what is the, you know, as Archimedes said, give me a fulcrum and a lever to place upon it. And uh, if you have a long enough version, you can move the world, right? And so... I kind of thought about that with social media. And I think I read a post from Naval Ravikant that basically talked about the three levels of leverage, which was first employment or people. You know, you could do something bigger than yourself if you convinced other people to join you. And then the second lever was capital. Most of the big wealthy humans that we know through time as titans, like the Rockefellers and the Rothschilds were created during the Banking Act, right? When we got access to other people's capital at scale. And then the third was code, Bezos. Musk, Gates, all of these guys had early access to technology before other people did. And so they had an army of robots, quote unquote, online. And the fourth one that he hadn't talked about enough yet was audience. And audience, in my mind, is the first permissionless form of leverage. Banks, you had to ask for the money. Code, you had to have access to the technology. And for humans, you needed money to pay them, right? And now we had audience. And I thought, wait a second, I'm running around trying to raise capital for investment deals. I'm doing, you know, I'm in the Million Mile Club. I'm doing 100,000 plus miles a year. It's actually not that fun. What would it look like if instead of me going to people, I brought them to me? And once I started looking at the power of social media, I thought, oh my, this is, I can't believe I haven't seen this before. In finance, we don't typically do social media because unlike real estate, we have way tighter rules for, for raising capital. I remember I worked at a firm where I was had all these licenses, you know, 66 and 63 and series seven and 24. And my firm said, you know, if, if you say anything publicly, you could move the markets. I'm like, bro, it's like me and my mom on here. Nobody's following my stuff yet. But they basically, you know, my CEO at the time said to me, we get rich quietly and we don't talk about it. We don't make a ruckus. And I thought, I don't know. I think we could like get rich in public if we did it the right way. And so that convinced me, oh, I'm going to build a huge social audience. I'm going to never do another steak dinner and I'm going to see how big this could get. And it turns out it's, I was right. Yeah. 
Yeah, you know, I, I first realized that when I interviewed Grant Cardone on uh, the Bigger Pockets podcast back yeah. know, five, six years ago. And I, it just clicked during the interview. It clicked what he was doing. I was like, oh, like I just thought he was like this loud mouth, you know, like just on a podcast talking because he's really good at talking. And then I was like, oh, no, he's building an empire out of out of eyeballs. Yeah. And then he can do whatever he wants with that. And then I was at a conference recently and I, I, a guy named, I don't know if you know him, his name is, I think Dean Jackson. I might be saying his mm-hmm. name wrong. But he's an internet marketing kind of educator. Mm-hmm. But he did this great presentation. And what he did is he showed a video up on the screen of the factory color pop that makes makeup. And they walk through his factory. And this woman, like the woman who's the uh, social media manager for them, she's given a tour throughout this whole factory. And she goes first from like, here's all of our social media team. There's like eight people there. And here's our coders, our developers, and here's yeah. our, this. and she goes room after room after room in this huge facility. And then she goes, here's our actual like scientists. And there's like 50 people in lab coats. And then she goes from there into the factory part. Here's where we're putting it in boxes and the labels are printed. And I mean, the hundreds of people working in here. And she's like, that's, you know, that's our place. And then he goes, now let me show you another video. And he pulls up a video of Kylie Jenner giving a tour of her Kylie makeup. Same thing. It's actually a larger factory or large night factory, but larger building. Yeah. And she's given a tour. She's like, this is my lobby. And I really like the pictures on the wall. And I really like this pink accessory over here. And there's no one there. It's empty. She goes another room, another room, another room. Everything's empty. Everything's just bare and open and like pictures on the wall. And it's comical because she's like, like one of her lines was like, and this is where our, our meetings happen. One time I had to sit in an eight hour meeting. And it's like such a, like, it was such a weird vibe of like different than the first one. And she gets to the end and he turns it off and he goes, now, which of those two makeup companies makes more money? Oh, yeah. And it was, you know, Kylie's ma- makes more. And then he goes, who makes Kylie's makeup? And it was ColourPop. Yeah. And it was this great point of saying the new economy is now eyeballs. Like Kylie's doing it right. And it, the other company's not doing it wrong. Just which one's going to be a whole lot more easy to run? If you have the ability to communicate well on social, that is the new economy. That's where things are going. So that's I think why you're I'm, right. Well, and the other thing I found too is I used to think that people that were online were a little, you know, I was like, mm-hmm. I don't want to admit, like Grant Cardone is a perfect example, right? I don't know the guy, but he's awesome. Yeah. But like, if you were to watch 30 or 60 seconds of some of his stuff, you might think, Meh, like, <laughs> I don't know if I want to give this guy all my money, yep. no matter how many planes he has. And so that used to be the vibe that I thought for mm-hmm. social media. I thought these guys maybe can't do the thing, so they talk about yes. the thing. And especially for those of us that are on, you know, Wall Street and we're serious and we have our briefcases, mm-hmm. we have this ego about the fact that, you know, we're highly educated and anybody who talks on the internet to the retail clients, aka you and me, they must not be as smart. And I think that kept me from making millions of dollars more than I should have for probably 10 years because I had this old school perspective on the fact that, no, the only way to make real money in investing is to go to the big institutions like mm-hmm you know, our pensions and sovereign wealth funds and get them to invest with me, which is what I did for years. But what nobody tells you is those big institutions, like I would get $100 million, $250 million check sizes, uh, but they would be charged 0.01, basically have one BIP that I would get to charge them versus 20 basis points as the average cost for uh, a retail client. And so, you know, now today I have a bunch of friends, you do too, who raise from retail investors. Your margins are just better. There's less questions from investors. They stay for longer on average than the institutions. And so I think there's a huge benefit to going straight to the people as opposed to before we had all these institutions in the middle. And guess what? They're failing just like everybody else. Those pensions are not allocating any better than anybody is. And so I've totally changed my perspective on it. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I I definitely agree. We have 
you know, we've raised from 1,500, maybe 2,000 total investors. Now we raise yeah. about a quarter of a billion dollars. And yeah, like my favorite piece of that is if one of them is upset, which I don't, you don't hear upset people very often, but if somebody was upset and they're like, all right, I'm not investing with you anymore. Okay. It's one out of 2,000 yeah. versus we go and uh, we probably could go get a hundred million dollar check from somebody. I would much rather get a thousand little checks than one big one. Cause like the leverage now is not on that one person. Cause yeah, I mean, so many stories I've heard, especially in the, uh, in the real estate space where you go raise all your money from one person. And then yeah. the day before closing, like, oh, we're going to renegotiate this because you have no other options. Yeah. And it really shifted that power. So yeah, I love the idea of democratizing what we do in the private equity and the real estate space. So Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. and especially if you do it right. I think there's a lot of people on the internet that charge too much to yeah. retail investors. Yep. And I'm really against that. I think most people look at how people sell things online to their audience completely wrong. And they think if you sell courses and masterminds, et cetera, that scam me, that's not good. And in actuality, I think it's too cheap of a way we, we sell them, yep. but it is so much less expensive for me to quote unquote sell somebody a course or a mastermind because the ROI on that is infinite. Whereas if you invest alongside me, say you give me a hundred thousand dollar check to invest, I get a percentage of every dollar that you make and every dollar that you give me. If you instead buy a course for 500 bucks or $2,000 and you make $1 million, do I charge you more for that? Absolutely not. And so I think the retail human, the normal human needs to think about the way that they spend completely differently because the rich keep getting richer and the poor, they fight the wrong battles. Mm. The right battle is how can I get as much information as humanly possible for as cheap as possible, especially on my future earnings. So like I want to spend money now today that does not track to the money I'm going to make in five or 10 years. And you can't do that if you just invest. You can only do that by investing in yourself. So it's uh, it's something I'm pretty big about online. I love that. Yeah. All right. So let's go back to your story. And I want to know how you kind of got into that world. But before we do, we're going to throw in today's show sponsor. But one thing we do for the sponsorship of the show is every episode, we give 100% of the, I guess, profits from the ad toward a charity of the guest choosing. Oh, so the question cool. for you, do you have a charity or just a cause that uh, is near and dear to your heart. Yeah, the SEAL Future Foundation. The SEAL Future Foundation. Why is that important to you? My husband's a former Navy SEAL. And so the SEAL Future Foundation is really cool. It's run by a couple of friends of ours. And they help what's called Gold Star Families. So those are families who have lost someone in the war, typically. They help them after their husband uh, hasn't come home from war. And then they also help rehabilitate a lot of special operators. And so you know, a lot of these guys come back and they've worked at an extremely high level, a lot of adrenaline, a lot of purpose for decades. Yeah. And then they come out and they're supposed to do what? You know, I remember I was working in one of our military programs um, with my husband, Chris, and they were telling these 10-year-long Navy SEALs who have led people through incredible missions. Their skill set is incredibly stacked. The government spends a million dollars on average per SEAL. Not that there's anything wrong with UPS, but they had UPS presenting to them for how to start a job at $58,000 in middle management at UPS. Mm. The SEAL Future Foundation makes sure that they have a better off-ramp than that. Yeah. Wow. All right. So we will definitely give to that. Amazing. Was, That's yeah, cool. Isn't that kind of neat? Yeah, what, I love that idea. What's kind of cool too is it incentivizes all the guests that are on the show to now, because you know we charge CPM or whatever yeah. on ad, right? So the more people listen to the show, the more the money more it makes, they, which yeah, the more their charity gets. One. So that's yeah. kind of the way we run the show. So with Smart. that said- You're clever. You know some stuff about the internet <laughs> after nine years. We're figuring it out. With that said, let's roll the ad. Hey, it's Brennan. This ad is only for like a like 5% of the audience listening to this, but if that's you, you're gonna love this. Are you interested in a hassle-free way to grow your wealth? 
a place where you can earn strong returns without any extra effort on your part and lower risk. Well, besides running my podcast here and the Better Life Tribe, which you know 100% of profits of that go to charity, I also manage a profitable real estate investment company called Open Door Capital. You know, our main goal at ODC is to help you achieve a better life through passive real estate investing. In other words, we want to help you make more money so that you can live the life that you desire. Since 2018, we've acquired over $730 million in value-add real estate across the country, delivering exceptional returns to more than 1,500 passive investors just like you. And here's the best part. You can start investing in one of our opportunities right now because our team has diligently evaluated over 700 deals this year to bring you our latest offering. It's called the Texas 3-Pack. The portfolio consists of three apartment complexes totaling 637 units located in Houston and Austin, Texas. We're acquiring these properties off market at a staggering $25 million discount. And by assuming the seller's loan, we have secured a low interest rate of 3.8% for the next seven years. With that interest rate and the price discount, this investment carries less risk for investors, allowing my team to focus on creating value for you. Visit our website at odcfund.com slash better life to connect with my team and determine if this deal is right for you. Again, that's odcfund.com slash better life. Thanks for your attention. Look forward to potentially helping you achieve your financial goals with Open Door Capital. All right, so let's go back to your story. So you were a journalist in kind of that Mexican-American front. Have you read that book, by the way? It's called like the Americana, I think. Have you heard oh, of that one? Uh-uh. It's a good? It's phenomenal. One of the best fiction books I've ever read, but it's about, and I'm probably butchering the name, but it's about a, a woman and her child are trying to flee from Mexico, who family's massacred, and she has to go basically riding trains and all this up to America. But oh, yeah. that book, even though it was fiction, I mean, it's based on all real like stuff that happens, but that changed my perspective a lot on the idea of borders and like keeping people out. And I'm, I'm not saying we just necessarily open up every border. And, no, you know, I don't but, agree with that either. Yeah. yeah. But like just that idea of like, we have it so good here in America and it's so rough for so many people. So anyway, that made a huge impact on me, that book. So definitely check it out, everybody. Uh, if I just remembered the name, it would be better, but whatever. <laughs> All right. So you went Somebody from that. Tell you. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, let me just sit there for one minute longer. So one other thing we do, like the whole tribe that we have around the Better Life uh, community is called the Better Life Tribe. 100% of all the profits of that go to against the fight against human trafficking. Because again, we're just like, I mean, I'll make money in real estate. I've got all the private equity stuff just fine. So why not dedicate this? So that was like near and dear to my heart. But what did that do to you, I guess, in terms of like seeing it on the front lines, what was out there? Like, what have you seen? How did that affect you? We actually started a, a YouTube channel with kind of this in mind. It's just my name, Cody Sanchez. And, and the reason that we started that is we have we have a twofold mission at Contrarian Thinking. One is we want to create 1 million financially free humans. We actually track that. So anybody in our ecosystem that shares that they've reached financial freedom, which basically means that you can cover your costs yeah. with varying lines of income that aren't just your W-2. And we want to create 100,000 small business owners. And one of the reasons we did that is because when I was in Mexico, I was in, in Juarez. And Juarez now is pretty seedy. But back then, I mean, this was this was 15 years ago, 16 years ago. It was tough. I mean, the cartels, uh, the Sinaloan and the Sonoran cartels battled out for territory dominance. I had to evacuate the city at one point because the large prison that was located there, one of the cartel leaders was held in it and they brought anti-tank helicopters that blew open the prison and helped the cartel leader escape. So it was a wild west to say the least. And what stuck with me is I was what, like 20, 21 at the time. And long brown hair, you know, I'm, I'm of Latin descent, I'm of Hispanic descent. 
And as you cross the border from El Paso to Juarez, you cross the Rio Grande. And as like almost any border has, you see like, you know, the huge barbed wire fences and tons of lights and dogs and, you know, lines and separation. And But the one thing about Juarez is that's different is as you cross over across the median, there's a huge uh, wooden cross. I don't know if it's still there today, but a very big wooden cross. And as you get closer to it, you see that covering the cross are ribbons and photos and mementos. And those all come from Las Desaparecidas, the, the disappeared. Mm. And these women have been brutalized and murdered and raped for going on decades now and left in varying parts of Juarez and the desert. And nobody knows quite why thousands of women a year are murdered this way. And so what stuck with me is as I was looking at this cross and they have these wanted or missing photos all over the, the city, is that I, Cody Sanchez, looked a lot like mm -hmm. these women on this cross. And so it stuck with me for a while. Like, what was the difference between me and them, right? And it wasn't that I was American alone because there were plenty of Mexicans who were protected from this. It really came down to one thing, that I had access to a higher socioeconomic level, money, yeah. the international language. The one language that we all speak is this green currency. And so I realized really quickly when I was down there that if I wanted to have a real impact, it wasn't enough to tell stories that as a journalist, I had to actually understand this currency, build a company that could help uplift and empower others. And I originally do that, did that by hiring, you know, I've hired hundreds of people throughout my career and my portfolio companies have hired thousands because I really believe in a hand up, not a hand out. I think most mm -hmm. humans have something that they can give and we just can empower them to do that. And so I realized that moment then that we really needed to change the way that we did empowerment for whatever subgroup of humans that you associate with. And that stuck with me to this day. I mean, I remember one time, Brandon, I, you know, I would have be tasked, I was working for the Associated Press for a period and then writing this story, and I would be tasked to go to the morgue on a daily basis. And there were two newspapers. One newspaper was run by the government locally, and one was run by one of the cartels. I can't remember which. And each day they would have different tallies of the number of women that were killed. And so I would go there to the morgue to actually try to identify what the right number was. And we were trying to figure out who's killing these people. Is it the mm -hmm. government? Is it the cartels? And so we were counting body parts. And does this hand belong to that leg? And watching their families come in when they could actually be identified. Seeing that, I think, really changed my perspective on what matters and the impact of being powerless. Mm -hmm. And powerless usually means not having money in our world today. And I never, never wanted to be that way. That's powerful. You know, when we look at the this fight against human trafficking and and a lot of just a lot of the evils of this world, it sounds terrible, but money is oftentimes the solution. I mean, that sounds terrible, right? And I'm not saying you just throw money at things, but it's the education of how to elevate yourself out. Like the reason people, I think a lot of people think of human trafficking, especially as like, oh, it's just like that movie Taken with Liam Neeson, right? It was like you know some American girls in France, and all of a sudden people bust down her door and steal her and kidnap her. I'm sure that happens. Yeah. But a lot of it, a lot of the trafficking, whether you know sex slavery or just you know like the the labor human trafficking, is people are just really poor, yep. and so they sell themselves somehow into that situation and then can't get out. That's so we can exactly right. yeah, start it from that point and try to elevate people and, and teach them how to generate money, how to buy business or start a business, whether that's in America or overseas. It just that baseline gets you above that point. And now we have less of a problem. Totally agree with that. So where does contrarian, the, the word contrarian and the idea of contrarian thinking and, and you're kind of the brand around contrarian, where does that come from? I was actually talking one of your team members beforehand about this, but oh, it Alex actually, talks about that book all the time. Yeah. yeah. 
we were talking about um, one of my favorite books, Christopher Hitchens, The Ultimate Contrarian. And he wrote a book called Letters to a Young Contrarian. And, uh, and it stuck with me. I think I read that in high school and I would go back to it every so often. It's, it's a little bit of a quirky book. So you have to work through it. It's very short. And it's basically these little letters that he is pretending to send or actually sending to somebody in their youth about how to stand on your own two feet and think independently. You know, I've realized in my life that one of the most powerful things we can do, it's not actually tactics. It's not which job you pick. It's not which industry you do. It's have you actually quantified the best way for your brain to function? And can you question things? So our motto is is to question everything and contrarian thinking. And we started that media company because I have this belief. I call it the modern hierarchy. But basically, Maslow's hierarchy was right in a lot of ways. But the modern hierarchy to me is that First, you have to have financial freedom. Before anything else, you need financial freedom. You need to have a roof over your head and food in your belly. Then you can go to physical freedom, aka I get to work where I want to, when I want to, on what I want to. And finally, at the top, you can have philosophical freedom, aka I feel safe enough in the foundation that I've built to stand up for my beliefs. And in this day and age, what more do we need than people who are confident and courageous enough to stand up for what they believe and to stand up for not just what they believe, but what they stress test to be true. And so that is something we obsess on is can we build financially free humans and then can we up-level their way of thinking so that they can stand again against a lot of the things that I think are wrong in the world today. Yeah, that's good. So let's let's go through your journey then, how you got to those kind of levels. Yeah. The first kind of baseline financial freedom, how did you get there? So you left mm. the the job working there in Mexico. Yeah. What happened next? Let's see. So I definitely wasn't financially free then. I mean, I remember I grew up in a very middle-class family. My dad didn't go to college. He was part of an immigrant family as well. I would bounce my credit account. I don't even think I had my debit account. I didn't have a credit card until I was well into my 20s. And I think that happened on a weekly basis for most of my college experience and then a few years after. Um, But what changed for me is I decided once that I wanted to get into finance and not go into journalism, that I would just go to where the game was playing. So I was like, okay, I want to be in finance. I want to understand money. I don't have any of it. I don't have any mentors in my life that are rich or have money. I've never even talked to my parents about it because Latinos, we don't do that. Mm -hmm. And my parents would think, that it was kind of gross. Like, oh, you're just going to try to understand money and get rich. Like that's not our cultural values. And so I didn't have anybody to go to. And the only thing, thankfully, that I had access to at that time, I went to a very big university, Arizona State, Harvard of the West, really. (laughs) And uh, that university had a bunch of clubs and conferences and events. And so I just said, "Eh, I don't have anybody I know in this space, but I'm going to go to as many events and as many conferences as I can get my little hands on for free 99. And so I went to a bunch. And after about the third or fourth one, I ended up just getting lucky and sitting next to a lady. Her name was Tara, and she ran recruiting at Vanguard. And because I was a former journalist, I asked a lot of questions. So I was like, Tara, what do you do? What does that mean? Do you like it? How does that serve people? What's next? Where is that going to grow? And at the end of this little dinner, I remember we had like pie for some reason. (laughs) At the end of our little pie, which I was eating all of it because I was, you know, a broke college student. She basically said, would you like to interview? And I was like, yes. And she was like, great. You know, I work in securities. And I'm like, like not that buff. You know, <laughs> I don't know if I could protect people, but I'm pretty like, I need a job, you know? So I'm like, great. You know, Vanguard at security company, of course. Like I know all about that. I'll get back to you. Yeah. And I went home and I Googled it. It was like, oh, oh securities, which I guess very means different. equity and learned a lot about it and then interviewed with her. And so I wasn't my first job. I think I made like $37,000 a year, mm-hmm. basically nothing, but that quickly scaled. 
And I think I didn't hit financial freedom probably until I started at Goldman, which was like, was pretty quick, two or three years later. I had a good salary. I invested a bunch in the stock market. The stock market was at rock bottom in 2008. I I took a lot of that money because I was so cheap and didn't spend on anything. And I invested more into the stock market. And then I started doing my first little business deals as I started to understand what investing really was. So I want to I go in the business stuff, but what yeah. was it like? I just, I'm curious. What was it like working for Goldman Sachs? I mean, like, oh. I, yeah, it's working as an investment banker, right? So like, what do you do? What is that like? Yeah, well, I did a bunch of different things at Goldman, but you know, here's a couple of good things about Goldman. One is I realized that I only wanted to work in a meritocracy. So if somebody's young and listening to this, you need to do one thing. You need to get around people who are better, smarter, faster, harder working than you. And you need to get into a place where they reward that. Mm. The culture of mediocrity, as opposed to the culture of meritocracy, is what separates the really wealthy from the not wealthy. And so I got very lucky early, in fact, that Vanguard is like what I call a socialist country, but in the form of capitalism. Like they have a very tiered hierarchical system. You can't move faster than this. You get this same bonus pool no matter what you put in. It's really not for people who want to strive and grow incredibly quickly, at least back then in my opinion. And then I went to Goldman Sachs and it was totally different. They cut the bottom 20% every single year. When I was there, they cut far more than that because we were during the financial crisis. You did a 360 review every year where people gave you all sorts of feedback. There was pretty harsh, typically. I had to to do something like 12 interviews to get in there. I had to do a presentation to what would be my future like coworkers in order to get in there. I must have studied for 50 hours to get the job at mm-hmm. Goldman. And thankfully, I got that job. But once I got into Goldman, it was a nonstop rat race. I mean, I lived in Chicago when I started there and worked in the asset management business to start. And I didn't see the sun for like six months because mm-hmm. Chicago's freezing. And we would work. We were in the office at seven and we probably wouldn't leave until sometimes seven or sometimes 10 or 11, et cetera. And so that really also cemented this idea of, you know, working hard is it's just a little notch that you need to have on your belt. And it's a little bit of a of an honor to get a chance to do it so young, because then as you get older, you don't have the stamina anymore. You don't want to do it to the same degree. But when you're young, you can soak it all in. And so Goldman's a hard place, but an incredible place for somebody who wants to grind. Mm. I was just talking to Justin Donald, uh, who yeah. you know, about the same thing where there's a period when you're in your maybe young 20s, mm-hmm. like maybe before you're married, before kids, where you sometimes you, you can grind in those years. Like those are the good grinding years. My wife and I were married at that time, but we still like we would be painting rental units at, you know, three in the morning because we had a lease signing at seven in the morning. And so like, you just do what you got to do. But because of those actions, because of that grind, one, it strengthens you. And then two, it it makes it so you don't have to do that for the next 50 years of your life. Oh, hundred percent. I mean, I think amateurs want to do what they love and professionals learn to love what it takes. Mm. And the second that you understand the difference between the two of those things, you can fall in love with the game. And I have never met someone who is wildly successful who is not obsessed with the game of business. And so your job as you're younger should be to find a way to become obsessed with not necessarily the outcome, not that I want to just be a painter and artist and et cetera. It's like learn to love the game. And the second you can learn to love the game, everything gets a lot easier because you do gamify things like painting up until three in the morning and having to get up at seven to do the lease. But I think this generation has been told a lot of lies about that. And they've been told, 
you know, that it's not okay for them to struggle that much, that in fact, things should be a little bit easier, that you should follow your passion uh, no matter what. And I actually totally disagree with that. I think there's an assault on excellence happening in the U.S. And the only people that win when your excellence is dimmed are the other people who are grinding. You don't win by working less. For some reason, we've lost that narrative. Yeah. So if you could give advice to somebody who's maybe in their young 20s right now, they're Mm -hmm. looking at financial freedom is like, hey, I want that. If you could only give them three pieces of advice, what Mm -hmm. would you give them? One, invest in you before you invest in assets. I buy boring businesses. I teach people how to buy boring businesses. The first thing I say to everybody is like, don't do any action for the next 90 days. Don't buy something. Don't invest in something. Your singular job is to spend at least an hour a day learning about investing. You will never, I can guarantee you, you will never regret spending the time learning what it means to make money either through investing or through earning. So that's the first thing. Don't make little investments. The biggest mistake I see people make, and one of the people on my team did this, she was listening to a dude on the internet who I'm actually friends with, funny enough. He was talking about day trading. Mm. And she spent $5,000 following his advice to day trade. Do you find yourself obsessed with this game of day trading or investing? Do you think that you are one of the best in the world at it? Are you getting really smart of the game at the game of it? Or are you just attempting to speculate and get rich quick? Because that is the fastest way to lose your money. Yeah. So that's one. Two, it's the old adage that we all know to be true, which is, I think you should be the poorest and the dumbest in as many rooms as you possibly can. And I try to do that continuously. I'm trying to do it with fitness right now, actually, mm, because yeah. I want a six pack. So I want to see if the six, like, do they rub off? Yeah, Are they yeah. contagious? I'm <laughs> it does. unsure. It does. <laughs> unsure. Um, but somebody said to me something I really liked, which is you should be, if you want to achieve a goal, get in a friend group where your goal is their norm. Yeah. That really flipped something for me because when it's my goal to have a six pack and eat healthy, but the people I'm hanging around all already have six packs and eat healthy. Their norm is what I want. Their goal will help me get to my goal way faster. And so that's the second thing. It's just getting in the right rooms. And then probably the the third is our motto. It's question everything you're told. Stuff by me, stuff by you. Your ability to hear an idea, even well or beautifully articulated, write it down and then go, do I agree with this? Hmm. Hmm, I'm not sure I do. What about second and third order effects of this situation? That critical thinking component will save people from poor investment decisions, and it'll save them from poor career decisions, and it will make them become a thinker as opposed to a follower. That's really good. You know, I just made a a video for Instagram the other day uh, about that experiment they did back in, I think it was like the 50s, where they made people, they were testing like people's uh, ability to respond to authority, even to the point of making, like hurting people, right? Mm. They had the, you got to shock this person, right? You remember that one? So Uh for those who haven't heard it, the idea is... There was a person who was an actor sitting there in a room, and then in another room is the is the actual test subject that they bring in. And then the person of authority says, I want you to zap them when they get their question wrong or whatever. So they zap them, and then they, they go zap them harder. Okay, zap them harder to the point where they're zapping them. Now, it wasn't they weren't really zapping them, but it was like 450 volts like going in supposedly yeah. to the point of killing these people. And it said over 50% of the participants would zap people to the point of death simply because some authority standing over their shoulder told them to. Right. So the way I translated this is oftentimes we see people's authority, you know, I mean, this is, I mean, obviously explains a lot about like the Holocaust and all those terrible things, but it also explains a lot of some guru on the internet, some person on Instagram says that day trading is the thing, that mobile home parks are the thing, that whatever. And so just that idea of, I'm going to question that. 
It's such valuable advice because it's really easy to just accept everything because somebody with a big Instagram following said to do it. Oh, it's so true. Yeah, that I forget what the name of the study is. Yeah, I can't we should find it. it. But the part that killed me too is that they were in separate rooms and you could imagine if you are administering the test, but yeah. you're actually the test subject, yeah, yeah, but yeah. you don't realize it. And then as I read it, you couldn't see the person in the other room that was yeah. getting shocked, but they were yelling. So yeah. they'd be like, ah, yeah. ah, ah. Yep. And the person would keep applying yeah. it. <laughs> and then I heard another one yes. where they did the same thing on on the subway and basically saw who would get up uh, for people. So just in a very small way, if an elderly or pregnant person was sitting down and somebody asked them for their seat, often the elderly or pregnant person would get up for like a young man or woman that really didn't need to sit down, obviously. Yeah. And so just our natural social conditioning of, oh, I'm going to be okay to people. I'm going to be nice. I'm going to be proper, or I'm going to listen to authority is highly, highly ingrained. And it doesn't mean you have to be a jerk. That's not yeah. what we're saying. You don't have to say, you know, push back on authority in every single way. But I do think having your own mind is incredibly powerful and very rare today. Yeah, very rare. So how did you get from, you know, employee mm -hmm. In a, in a scalable income thing, you said you got kind of that level of financial freedom through a scalable income source. Well, something I teach yeah. all the time is like, you don't have to be an entrepreneur. There's a lot of scalable jobs out there, totally. right? Where you get into that kind of mentality. But how did you go from that to entrepreneur? I'm really big on first you earn. So you want to increase your earnings potential as much as humanly possible. Then you learn about investing and how to move forward in it. Then you apply. So you do your first couple of investments, very small. And then finally, you master. And I think most people actually go, and by master, I mean, you put big checks in, you take serious risks. Most people want to go from earn to master. So I hate my job right now. So I'd like to go and be a full-time real estate investor. And that's where things go really sideways, typically. And so one of the things we talk about a lot, and we have a group called Cashflow, which is sort of, you know, getting to your first, let's say million dollars. And in this group, we talk a lot about getting comfortable with negotiation and earning. It's really incredible, actually, how few people are good at negotiation and how uncomfortable it mm -hmm. makes them. I remember the first time I asked my boss for a raise, uh, I went to the internet and I asked around, like, how do I do this in an appropriate manner? Because he was very, he's kind of mean. Uh, his name was Andy. Shout out Andy if he's out there. <laughs> uh, but he was very serious, smart guy, but he made you earn every single thing. And I remember when I went to go ask for my raise, I was like, what is a way where I could decrease this sucking for him because it's awful when somebody asks you for a raise as an employee and you can't give it to them or you don't think they're as an employer or you don't think that they're actually worth that. And so there's this tension obviously that happens immediately and everybody all the time is coming to you as an employer asking yeah. for more money. And so you can actually really negatively impact the, the relationship. But I said, okay, I'm going to come up with like kind of a fun way that I could ask him where he is never going to have felt this before and simultaneously will feel like it's low risk. So I like search around on the internet and I kind of found this idea of, I got a cocktail napkin and on the cocktail napkin, I wrote on it like a couple numbers. Like the first number was uh, the growth that I was going to have in the business. I think it was from a revenue perspective. Like the second number was what our profits were going to be in the business that I was, I was working in, in my little lane. Uh, and then the third was what I wanted. And I pulled the napkin out in a meeting with Andy and I'm all sweaty and I'm nervous. And I um, said, you know, Andy, somewhere I read that any idea worth having at some point was written on a cocktail napkin. And so I said, I want to earn more money at this company, but I fully understand that in order to earn more money, I have to make more money for the company. So I brought you an idea for what I think I could increase and grow within the company that would be really material to you. And if I did those things, maybe I could make this number at the bottom. 
And if that number isn't right for you, I'd love to have a conversation on what it would take for me to get to that bottom number and we could adjust the top ones. And he kind of like looked at me, he's like, Matt, like what's wrong with, you know, it's, it's just like defused the situation. Yeah. And so as an employee, those little negotiation tactics, I did them at least once a year. And sometimes I did them biannually if I was really killing it, led me to being one of the better paid people pretty consistently. And then I always usually asked for any ability to co-invest in deals we were doing. So it was like, I'm going to put my money. I believe in what we're doing so much here. I'd like to put my money into a deal. I'm not asking you for anything. I'm asking for you to like, maybe let me put 5K in. And that led to me accelerating my, my cash That's faster. Cool. Yeah, there's such lesson there around, you know, asking for the raise, which I, I don't think I ever in my entire career asked for a raise ever. That said, I would more like, and maybe this is asking, right? I would negotiate some way to make more money if the business did well, right? Yep. So it was never, I was never asking, and this is probably the difference. I mean, I've had, I've had many employees come and ask me for raises. Yeah. And sometimes we give them, sometimes we don't. But ultimately, like, I love that you said, I know the company has to make more money. So how do I get there? Exactly. That's the approach. So I, I mean, I just find little ways to negotiate. For example, I mean, the small way was I wrote a book for bigger pockets or five of them, right? And I got a piece of all of them. So the better right. the books did, the more money that I made. So I gave myself a, a raise. It reminds me of James Elchicher, I think is his name. Yeah. He wrote a book called Choose Yourself. Yeah. It's like instead of waiting around for somebody to choose you, it's like, like I'm going to go find a way to make this happen. Yeah. Uh, and I think people are would be surprised at how many bosses out there would be really excited to have that conversation with their employees because it's not a, an entitlement conversation. It's a, how can I provide more value to this company and therefore make more money? Yeah, it's so true. Well, there's, I mean, there is... I think there's like a, a canyon of competence in the world today. And basically you have on one side, very, very few, highly competent, highly trusted humans. And then you have this chasm between the rest of the people mm -hmm. out there. And most people candidly don't work as hard as the top A players. The 80-20 rule is really true. You know, 80% of your results will be driven by 20% of your people and vice versa. And I've looked at hundreds of deals and this happens across almost all of my companies. Yeah. And so if you can get yourself on the right side of the chasm, one, you're going to be able to negotiate much, much better. But if you ask yourself this question, you don't deserve a raise. And the question is, how much value do I drive to this company? And if your answer to that question is, I don't know, then you can't ask for a raise. Mm. Because the only way you can ask for a raise is if you say, I think I drive this much for the company. I'm not sure. I'd like to check in with them on a consistent basis. I think I'm beating my goals every single time. And if not, I don't think you can ask for a raise. But what's interesting is, this stuff is like so unpopular to talk about on the internet. I remember we did a video that I thought was really good and it was about how to ask for a raise. And I was like, wah, wah, nobody cared. And then it was like 37 passive income strategies yeah. for, oh, huge, yep. you know? And it's like, you are going to make so much money working for somebody else and doing all the mistakes on their dime 100%. for probably the first at least five, but yep. maybe 10 years of your career because it will never bankrupt you. And then once you get past that 10-year period, start taking that cash and doing other stuff with it. But in the beginning, I mean, gosh, the, the amount of mistakes I made on Goldman's dime and Vanguard's yep. dime and State Street's dime were probably, you know, a million dollars plus. And that would have ruined me, but didn't yeah, hurt them. I know. Yeah, I built my whole thing up. I mean, I made so many mistakes on Josh Dorkin's dime on Bigger Pockets, right. right? Yeah, I learned how to podcast. I learned social media. I learned how to raise capital. All of that while getting a good salary that was scalable income. Uh, at bigger pockets. Now, what do you say to those people though? They're firemen. They are a teacher. They can't negotiate for more. They're not going to get more. Yeah. Uh, what do you say to those people? How do they earn more? Yeah, it's a great question. So for those type of people, a couple things. One, I think there are fewer of you than you think. Mm -hmm. Don't use it as an excuse. Many people hear this and they go, 
I could never negotiate for a higher salary because I'm a mortgage broker and my boss said I couldn't. It's like, Mm -hmm. this is not, no, that's wrong. If your boss says you couldn't for 99.9% of you guys get a new, new job. That's it. And if you can't grow according to your value, you're adding to the company, jump every like two years. I like to give pretty much everybody at my company has some sort of incentive aligned bonus. So like if you do X and we win, you get Y. And uh, I think that's the way that it should be. So that's what you should strive for. Now, for the 0.1% of people, like a teacher or a firefighter, I would say that you have to get really, really smart then on taking this, the, the amount of capital you have and learning how to invest it. Because the problem is it really does take money to make money on investing. And anybody who tells you otherwise than that is, is not true. So your game would be, how can I learn as much as possible in some ancillary field that could be you know, that I could have an unfair advantage. Like if I was a teacher, I would probably have a Gumroad course that I sell on how to teach a class publicly. And I would sell that to my other teachers, or I might do tutoring on the side. And then I might scale up the tutoring business on the side to a curriculum that I sell to other people tutoring on the side. And then at some point, uh, you might determine that you don't want to teach or be a firefighter anymore and do those other paths. Or you have what I like to call the FU fund, which is just you have enough cash where at any given point, if somebody tells you something to do that you don't want to do, you get to say, I'm out. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah. And really what you're doing in that case is you're elevating your skill set to a higher dollar per hour task, right? Like, yeah, being a teacher, like, okay, teachers are super valuable. We love them and all that, but it's still a $40,000 a year job, which is whatever, I don't know, 20 bucks an hour, 15 bucks an hour. Like it's a $20 an hour job. Yep. And so if you now learn course creation, now you're have a, that's a hundred dollar an hour job. Like once you get good at it yep. and if you learn whatever trading as Goldman Sachs, now maybe you're at a $500 an hour job. So everything's got a dollar per hour. You just, and the great thing about our modern economy is that you can gain those skills for no cost, like YouTube, or you may pay for a course if you want to get more direct, like fast growth, yeah, but it's, it, true. it's all right there. Well, the other part is typically jobs where you cannot negotiate for an upside. You have a ton of downtime. Yeah. Teachers, you have the entire summer off. Yep, what yep. are you doing with it? Teachers, you only work from eight to whatever, three typically. What are you doing with the rest of the time? Teachers, how about you work in a public school right now where definitely your cap? Why don't you go to Tim Kennedy's school here and yeah. see if they have higher pay that they pay people? And also, if you get into an entrepreneurial school like that or a you know a private school, you have the ability to negotiate not only your salary, but what else can I do? Yes, I'm a teacher, but I would also like to start this XYZ thing. Can I get a cut of the the revenue from an outside curriculum that I start. Mm-hmm. You know, what if I bring in some sponsorship dollars for the school for this new baseball team that we're starting and I bring on a coach for it too, even though I have nothing to do with it, could I get some cut? So I think basically we call this becoming a deal maker. It's how can you see through the matrix? Once you see how business is played and you understand the matrix, one, you can never go back. You've been red-pilled. And two, you'll see business opportunities everywhere. And it'll, it'll actually like drive probably your partner crazy. I don't know if your wife, well, yeah. she's in the, the game too, but. It does my, drive her crazy. Yeah, though, yeah. 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 You go into a place, you're like, oh my gosh, not optimized tables yes, over yeah. here. You know, what about signage? I can't believe that they don't have an online presence, right? And so get to that level. Then you will never listen to a podcast and go, there's no way I can earn more. And if you are saying there's no way you can earn more, you haven't unlocked the matrix yet. I never thought about that way, but you're so right. There are two types of people I feel like that are out there. There's people that say there's no opportunity. And so the biggest problem they have is how do I make more money? I don't know what to do. There's no opportunity. And then there's the other half of the people who are like, there's so much opportunity. What do I say no to? Yeah. And like, so for us who are entrepreneurial, like we were always thinking yeah, every day, a hundred times a day, I'm like, oh, I would love to buy that business and just turn it around and I can make this thing happen. Or, and, and a lot of that just comes from like 
frustrations. Anytime I ever have a problem with anything whatsoever, my mind automatically goes to, is this a business I could run to try to fix this problem? Right? Versus people are just like, this is a problem. This place sucks. Why are they, you know, like it's just, it's, there's two types of people and you get to choose which one you want to be. And the more you live in one, the more you get good at that one. So choose wisely. Oh, it's very true. Also, I read the statistic the other day that was fascinating. It goes back to making sure that you're with other people who have been red pilled as much as you humanly can. And the reason why is there's a study across 58,000 hours in 11 companies where if you sit within 25 feet of a top performer, your performance increases by 15%. You are no smarter, you work no harder, you are no better, and you're 15% better, right? (laughs) So if you make $100,000 a year, you're making $115,000 to really just cement the, the imagery of this. Now, here's the downside. If you sit within 25 feet of a poor performer, your performance suffers by 30%. And so it actually really, really matters what you listen to, who you sit next to, what company you work for. If you are sitting right now at a company with a bunch of people that you think are not grinding and growing, not only are you upset and you don't like what you're doing and you're not making enough money, but you're actually worse than you could be. And if you're in a company with a bunch of performers, you are better than you actually could be. And so I think that's why my companies, we've never really struggled to hire because I try to have a really high level of competence. And when people don't have a high level of competence, I very kindly tell them, this isn't your place. Like it's on to the next for you because not only are you not a high performer, but now you make everybody else slightly worse. Mm. And so it's being that relentless, I think, with who else is around you. It, it turns out that there's a power to proximity and your performance is contagious. That's so true. It goes back to what you're saying about the we get around people who make their norm your goal or your goal their norm. Right. Yeah. Just because you you become like those people. I like to say like I, I want to surround myself with people who make the impossible look like a Tuesday morning. It's just yeah. like like for me right now, yeah, six pack seems impossible for me. I'm like that's just crazy. But then there's some people who are like, what do you, do you know Gabe Hamill? You ever I met don't, Gabe? Uh-uh. Gabe's Gabe's a good buddy of mine. But Gabe is the most he like he has the world record for diamond pushups. I mean the most in shape guy in the world uh, that I know and. Like, it's just not weird for him to be in a perfect shape. That's just normal life, right? But then I look at that and there's things that he does that are very different than what I do. He goes to a conference. We'll go to conferences together. And the first thing he does is he goes to Whole Foods and he goes and stocks up on food. Yeah, he doesn't yeah. eat at the, like, why would you eat at the conference food? Like, that food's not good. Like, he goes to Whole Foods and gets fruits and vegetables. He's also vegan and I'm not vegan. So I look at that. I'm like, okay, well, so if I adopted some of his, his the things he does and I do that for long enough, I should naturally become more like Abe. So uh, it's not a it's not a rocket science. It's like figure out who does it, who makes the impossible look like a Tuesday morning, do what they do, and you get the results, or at least a portion thereof. It's so true. Well, I actually I think excellence is only really found in deviance. You can't be excellent and be like everybody else. Mm. And so if what you're doing is super normalized, if you go out and have as many drinks as your friends do every single time, if nobody's ever saying, that's weird, why are you going to bed so early? You're not coming out with us. If people are saying, oh, you know, you work too much, that's good. You're probably on a deviant path to excellence. And if you don't do those things, then you may just not achieve what you want to achieve. That's really, really good insight. All right. So what was your uh, first entrepreneurial venture after Goldman Sachs? I was really risk averse. I always have been. I was really scared to leave a job. It was horrifying to me, this idea of being my own boss. You know, what if, what if I fail? Yep. All of that was really scary. So I'm the opposite of most entrepreneurs. I stayed in a corporate job for a really long time. Mm. And while I stayed in the corporate job, I just started building things on the side. So I had 
I had a company called The Struggle Isn't Real. It was a blog way back in the day and a podcast. I think it's out there still somewhere. I should probably take that down. It's embarrassing. But um, I think I had that in like 2009 or 10. I mean, that was like early days. Could you imagine what that would have been like if I had stuck with it? But I wussed out. And so I closed it down one day because my boss said I couldn't have two. So that was one of my first ones. I had another little blog called Selling South that I ended up selling. Basically, that company was about um, international commerce because that's what I was doing at the time. And then I had a company called Threads Refined, which was an online fashion marketplace. Like all of these companies really didn't do much. You know, none of them were like massive failures, but not big successes. And so I had probably seven or eight swings at this game of entrepreneurship, low risk, you know, low CapEx, low amount of money in, but taught me, oh, how do you run a business? How do you recruit? What's a P&L when your own money's on the line? And the first time that I took 100% full swing was when I left First Trust, where I ran a, a relatively large Latin American firm in investing, and I went to a private equity fund. And I became a partner in the private equity fund. I put a ton of cash into the private equity fund, millions of dollars, and we invested in the cannabis sort of venture space. And we did really well with our first two funds. I exited that and then realized, I don't want partners. I especially don't want partners who are like, a lot of people in private equity are chilling. You know, they're like on the downswing. These guys have been in business for forever. I was so hungry. And so I made a mistake on who I partnered with. I wouldn't have done that again. And then I finally went out on my own and I started investing and collecting my own businesses. I suppose I started doing that before I left the PE fund because I'm like a I'm a scared to launch her. You know, I'm Matthew McConaughey in that thing where he never leaves his mom's basement. Like that's me. And I, you know, I just couldn't do it. And so I had to have, I think I replaced my income fully while I was still at first trust. I was still scared to go do it by myself. And then I had, you know, doubled something like that when I was at this cannabis private equity fund. And then finally I was like, I think I might be okay if I do this by myself. And so I don't think there's any right road except to not do it. Yeah. Because I do regret that I waited so long. I did the same thing when I left, when, you know, I started Open Door Capital, our, you know, private equity real yeah. estate fund three years before I left Bigger Pockets because yeah. I knew that day would eventually come where I wanted yeah. to be on my own, but I didn't necessarily want, a lot of people love the, the hero story of like, I just quit my job and I was broke and I figured out a way. And I'm like, I'm not that guy. Like, I like you, I don't like risk. I think that always surprises people probably when we tell them that. It's For like, sure. I actually don't like risk either. So I, I'm always trying to build that bridge to the next thing before I leave the last one. And so if people are scared listening to this, like that's, Good advice is just building the evenings and weekends. You can build something. Totally doable. Yeah. And I think the other thing too is, you know, when I left my cannabis private equity firm, you know, they wanted to invest in my next company Mm. because I had done it the right way. I didn't burn any bridges. I wasn't doing what some people do when they start to side hustle, which is like suck at your job, but still take a paycheck and side hustle away. I understand that it happens sometimes, but I would really try to not do that. And instead have this belief that your first check is going to actually be the person that you're employed with right now. And so, you know, I was talking to some members of my team about that. I'm like, listen, here's the vision for where we're going at Contrarian Thinking. We have 100 million views a month. We have millions of subscribers. My vision is we're going to create the Magnolia for like Chip and Joanna Gaines, a billion dollar business, uh, but we're going to do it in the finance realm about buying boring businesses and then financial freedom at, at large. And to do that, we're going to have to have a bunch of different companies within our company. Mm-hmm. And so the second that you're crushing it, but you feel like you want to go start your own thing, I want you to come talk to me. And let's talk about where you could build a business within our ecosystem that you could have equity in, but you could be a builder. Now, you don't get to do that right away. You don't get equity on day one, and you have to prove yourself. In finance, it's really normalized, especially in like venture capital, for you to go and be an investor. And then one day say, I have this business idea. 
do you guys want to invest in it? And I'll go run it. And so I think we should try to normalize that more. I don't need to own my people forever. I need you to set me up for success for when you want to eventually leave. But then I want to be your first check. Yeah. And you can tell if you did a good job or not, whether I give you that cash or not. Yeah. I've had that conversation with actually some of the people in this room. Well, like, yeah. you know, Alex, you and I have talked about that, right? Like, yeah, I, I very much want my people and you want your people. Like, we, we are teaching financial freedom to yeah. the world, but that all, that starts at home. Like that starts here. So like if anybody's still working for me 10 years from now, like I failed them because I didn't do something like it. They shouldn't yeah. be still unless they want to be. And my hope is that they're, again, they're somehow partnering with me at that point. Like what I don't want is my team just constantly focused on how do I put the least amount of effort into my job so I can build this side hustle. That's bad. Right? Yeah, because that, yeah, that's terrible. Like I want my, <laughs> this sounds terrible. I want my team thinking about me in the shower, right? Like <laughs> I want them thinking about me. I want their shower thoughts to not be, how do I buy Tanner, that? Tanner, Alexis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't want them thinking like in the shower when there's downtime or when there's, you know, whatever. I want them thinking, how do I make Brandon rich? Like that's yeah. what I want their thought. And the only way I'm going to do that and the only way I'm going to keep them because they're all entrepreneurial, the only way I keep them from spending all their time thinking about themselves is that we align interests somehow. Yeah. That they know that I'm there for them. I don't want them to work with me forever, but they're going to have to, just like I put in nine years at Bigger Pockets to learn, they're yeah. going to have to put in some years, hopefully not nine years, but they put in some time. Yeah. I will make sure if you're with me, this is the last job you ever have to have. Yeah. And if I preach that enough, I, that, that, I mean, do you guys, do you guys believe me? Is that true? Okay. Alex is half out. <laughs> All right. So, uh, yeah, that's, and that's a way to also just keep people around, right? Like, yeah. I mean, how often you found, how do you find good people? How do you keep good people? Yeah, it's a good, good thing. I think when you're interviewing for a job and if you're a stud, one of the things that you should ask is tell me about the other people who have worked for you. What's happened? What's happened with your best performers? So at my, you know, two companies ago, my best performer's name was April. Shout out April. Uh, and she was my COO. She ran my investment business for me operationally. And when I went to go leave that firm, I put her in a CEO. So now she runs that business. She owns the entire thing and she's crushing it. And the last firm before that, there was Tiffany. Uh, so Tiffany and I worked together at the private equity firm. And before I left, I let her know and told her that I was going to position her to take over my partnership shares. And so I try to leave a series. I think about life as a track record. And what I mean by that is life is a track record for your wins and losses in business. It's a track record for how you've moved people forward as, as employees. And it's also a track record for, you know, on social media now, you're really public. I'm really public. Like, how have you actually been? Have you held true to the things you said 10 years ago today in as far as, you know, you still believe them? And so I think that's really big. And so when people try to recruit and they only focus on money, I think that's the wrong thing to do. A lot of people pay better than anybody else. And what you actually see when you look at the research is that if you were to give seven out of 10 employees in the US a bonus of $10,000 or a trip worth less than $10,000, I think the amount was either five or $7,000, but it was a really cool trip and it was orchestrated with the rest of the group, most employees rate their job satisfaction higher from the trip than the bonus. Here's the kicker. Most employees say they want the $10,000. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But what happens is if you actually track their performance, they perform better for the activity than they do the cash. And so, you know, a lot of this gets back to don't believe what people say, believe what people do. Let them show you their actions. And so I think the way that I recruit is I pay a lot of attention to what do people's actions show me as opposed to what they say. And we're pretty maniacal at our companies about 
some of these guys who just recently came on to me know, like you'll, you'll get a hundred day plan when you start with me, 30, 60, 90 days. It breaks down everything you need to know to be successful in the company. There's really specific goals that you'll hit within that time period. There's stuff that I want you to learn within that time period. So you, oftentimes when you start a new job, you kind of come in and you're like, like, what are we going to do? Yeah. Right? Like what's happening? What am I supposed to do? Am I succeeding? And I try to create a little framework where there's a safety net. So it feels like, oh, I'm winning. Like, look, she told me exactly what to do to win and I'm winning. Or man, this is like too hard to do. I can't do this this quickly. We've got to renegotiate. And then the way you recruit is referrals. Your best people usually come from other people that work mm -hmm. from you or from somebody you know. And so I think those two are, are the secrets. So how do you manage, and we're going to get into the, the, all the stuff you own and, and buying that, but I, this is a personal question. I have a lot of business as well now and it's growing all the time, but I'm finding myself bogged down with meetings lately where like, I'm like, we do EOS right in all, all of our businesses, but now I'm, I'm on like an L10 meeting in multiple businesses. Now I have quarterly, full day quarterly meetings now with like five different companies. And I'm like, this is, this is getting big. So you have 20 six. So do you, how, where are your layers? How do you manage that whole thing until you're not working hundred hours a week? Yeah, it's smart. Well, or do you work hundred hours a week? I do work a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I usually work on just my new businesses. Okay. So like a contrarian thinking, there's a lot that I don't understand about media because I'm new to it. I've only been doing this for like two years. And so we're hyper not operationally where I want to be within this company, but there's a couple th different things we do. One, I like EOS. I find that EOS, it's a lot. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not sure every business necessitates that. We do sort of a pared down model. A couple things in an, is in every single business, I usually have one person that reports to me, nobody else. So in those 24 businesses, there are really only 12 CEOs. Those CEOs actually report into my CIO, who's my chief investment officer, and he reports into me every Friday. And so all those L10 meetings, all those one-on-ones, all those quarterly check-ins, that's for him to handle. Mm. He comes to me on Friday with the numbers because that's your health as a business is determined by one thing, profits, revenues, and whatever your main KPIs are, right? So every Friday I have a meeting and I kind of quickly glance over the financials of each business. They're all sent to me the exact same way in the exact same spreadsheet and coordinated by my CIO. We have a meeting for about an hour. We go through those numbers. If there are issues, I ping them back to him. He goes and handles it direct with the team. So having that middleman is really, really big. And then in my main businesses, which is contrarian thinking right now, I have four people that report to me and everybody else runs through their individual managers. And it's not because I like hierarchy. I don't. It's that I cannot give good attention to more than four direct reports. I can get up to eight and be okay, but like five feels good. So if I have my CIO and I have my four heads, that feels good. And so the, the reason for that is once you have too many people coming to you one-off for things, there's stuff left in transit. And then also I find that people feel a little bad because you can't give them the time that they need. And so you just have to set expectations up front. So I'm pretty pretty aggressive about this. Like if you have a question from somebody and you're in a downline of hierarchy of let's say Tanner, you need to go to Tanner first and he will tell you whether or not to come to me with it or more likely he'll bring it to me in our weekly one-on-one. -on -one. And those are really templatized too. I've found that inside of systems and constraints is freedom. Yeah. And so the second you have systems and constraints, you'd think you'd be tied down, but actually you're free to think about the bigger things. So those are the main the main items. Yeah, that is such a powerful statement. I want to I want to rest here for a second on that idea of like structure creates freedom. I think you know in my young age, you know punk rock days, it was like you know anarchy and like we don't need all the rules. And I hated ties. I hated the corporate world. I would never want to do any of that again. And now it's like 
okay, now I understand we need to bring some of that back because that actually creates the freedom that you want. Because stress is usually caused by lack of systems. And what systems? That's organization. That's hierarchies. That's that stuff. So it's, I've had to, yeah, I've had to bounce back a little bit. And there's ways to not make it so corporate you know, besides like it's Hawaiian shirt Friday. Like, you know, like, yeah, trying to add that on top of a terrible culture is, is a horrible idea. But yeah. just having a simple like chain of command, like this is who you go to and we're going to hold to this. Yeah. Uh, or this is when we meet. This is what the document looks like that comes to me on Friday. Yeah. Uh, that's how you keep a business from, I think, getting into like office space style. Exactly. Well, the other thing, there's a quote that I'm going to butcher, but it basically is something along the lines of, if you want to teach a man to sail, do not teach him to go and cut the wood and lay the planks. Teach him instead to yearn for the open sea. Mm, yeah. In our businesses, we try to teach people to yearn for growth, personal responsibility, excellence. And because we teach them those things, and we truly believe that in order for you to achieve excellence, you have to have excellence in your daily actions. And every meeting you're late to, and everything you half-ass, and every idea that you don't share because you're a little nervous about it, every pullback that you have individually is not just not great for the company, it's an assault on your excellence as a human. And so that idea of implanting personal responsibility in your people, one, you're up-leveling them like nothing else, and two, it'll change your company forever. And we're not anywhere near where I want to be with that at contrarian thinking, but the pros all obsess on one thing. How do I build a dream and a vision so big that I replace other people's visions? Because that's what you do as an employer and an employee. And two is how do I keep that dream alive in their head continuously? Mm. And I was, my team's going to be tired of hearing this, but I was just at First Form, Andy Frisella's company. And I like his podcast a lot and I like him as a human, but I had no idea about his company and the operational excellence that they have. So I was actually talking to him today and his wife, Emily, about how do you guys create this incredible culture? And let me give you an example. So their headquarters is incredible, 180,000 square feet. They do millions and millions and millions of dollars in revenue. It's a huge company. And when we go into the headquarters, what most people notice is the Lamborghini in the front and, you know, the incredible setup and the huge gym and all the office spaces. That's what people see. But what I noticed is this. I went to the bathroom. And as I'm in the bathroom, I'm washing my hands. Normally, grab the paper towel, wash my hands, throw it in the trash, whatever. Person comes out of the bathroom next to me. And she washes her hands, grabs the paper towel, you know, or washes her hands, grabs the paper towel, cleans the inside of the sink, cleans the countertop. And I just thought, ah, what a nice lady. That's super nice. I wait in there for a second. I'm messing with my makeup. Another person comes out washes their hands, grabs a paper towel, cleans the sink, cleans the countertop. And I look at her and I'm like, why are you doing all this cleaning? Like, what is this? And she looks at me like kind of perplexed. And she goes, well, how you do anything is how you do everything. Right. And then she walks out and I was like, you know, I'm like this marketing yeah. admin just blew my mind and I have to fire everybody because <laughs> nobody's cleaning sinks and nobody's cleaning countertops and what's happening here. And when I asked Andy about it, he's like, of course. He goes, the most important thing we do every single day is we teach people to clean up after themselves. Because if you teach them that literally, physically, then they do it metaphorically. And I thought that was really powerful. And so my next phase of being a great company builder and leader is going to be one thing. I want to go and find the best operational companies that I can find and the best leaders that I can find. And I want to try to steal those tiny little secrets that everybody else ignores because most people just see the stake and they don't see what it takes to get there. Real estate. 
Let's talk mm. about your real estate story. What do you yeah. do real estate wise? What's your uh, history with that? Well, you are much bigger in real estate than I am. So my most of my portfolio. I'm also much bigger in real life than you. You are very tall. I'm very awkward You're extreme, tall. Yeah. What's the yeah. deal with like so many people on the internet being giants? I don't know, but it's a thing. It's I, a thing. No. Yeah. It's not even necessary. It's kind of unfair. <laughs> um, so real estate. Most of my businesses are what I call boring businesses. So they're car washes, laundromats, HVAC, accounting companies typical private equity companies that we buy and we scale or we hold forever and they cash flow. When it comes to real estate, my portfolio is pretty straightforward. I own property management company on the long-term side. I want to buy a couple more. I'm working on that right now. I own short-term rental property management companies. And then I own some of the underlying uh, real estate holdings. So I own some long-term rentals. I own some Airbnbs. But I really like the actual companies that manage those as opposed to the underlying real estate assets. And that's just because I'm a, I'm a, I'm a cash flow hussy. Like mm-hmm. that's just what I want. I want yeah. as much cash flow as possible. And you just can't get as much cash flow on individual assets typically as you can on a business mm-hmm. for the dollars that you put down yeah. on a relative scale. So that's what I do in the real estate space. I think one thing that I've been obsessed about lately is thinking about where's the next area for opportunity in real estate. And I know we're going to We're going to talk about that a little bit, but I think my plan will shift slightly. We own like 24 car washes in Texas, for example, and those car washes we own the real estate for too. And we just got a huge offer for those. Like I think we bought those on average for, let's call it seven to 10X profits. And we're going to sell them for like 18 to 24X profits, which is wild. And you've increased the profits, I'm sure. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. Added subscription, increased the size of the bays, lots of different things. More efficient because we use credit cards, et cetera. But I think I'm a, right now I'm a net seller of almost all real estate in this market, but I think that'll change. Yeah. So what do you think? I mean, where do, where do you think it's headed? Where's real estate headed? Where are the opportunities? Where are the problems? Well, I'd be see? really curious your take on it. I'll say the only part that I am eyeing pretty aggressively right now is what's happening in commercial real estate. So I think everybody in your audience probably is aware of the huge number of defaults we're starting to see in commercial real estate. Yeah. And the fact that, you know, I don't know, you can use a crazy market like San Francisco and know that 40 to 50% of those spaces are unrented. And it would take trillions of dollars to bail out the commercial real estate market, which could actually maybe happen because a lot of it is held by pensions, by and large. But I think we are on the edge of a shoe about to drop in the commercial real estate market. And I think it is as bad as 2008 but we aren't paying attention to it because we have layers between us like pensions, et cetera. And we've had this low interest rate market for a very long time. But those loans, you're starting to see them default. You're starting to see BlackRock has defaulted on multiple loads. You're starting to see individual property managers default, which they don't even own the assets. They're just managing them. And so that's an area where I think it will fall. And when that happens, I'm curious to pick up some assets. So we right now are looking for some space for one of our companies And I just won't buy in the office space right now because you could convert it and do all of that into homes. That's not my area of expertise. I want to wait until the asset at large is much cheaper. Yeah. You know, I think think you're 100% right. I think there's a lot of problems in commercial. I think multifamily, depending on the type of debt people get, Mm -hmm. like multifamily is going to be fine unless you have really short-term debt and you can't refinance it. That's the biggest problem right now. We just talked about that with Justin Donald that there's you know, if people have a two-year loan and it's coming up here in four months from now and interest rates are at seven instead of five where you wanted them, you might not be able to refinance. That's a problem, but that's a fairly contained in the multifamily space. The office space, 100% agreed. 
we've got a problem, especially in all the big cities. Yeah. Uh, there are, you know, maybe it's going to be a little bit localized, but yeah, San Francisco is just in trouble, just period. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how they're, I don't know how California survives in the next decade. I, I mean, I agree. They'll always survive somehow, but it's, it's in trouble. The office space is definitely a worry. And ironically, I'm actually looking to build an office space in Maui, but there's yeah. zero office in Maui. So I feel okay with that. Yeah. But because it's a supply and demand issue, right? What, what I see is, is, Commercial is going to struggle for a while. I think you're right. I think there is bailout opportunity because the government doesn't want pension funds to go you know, yeah. under. That's that's American money. Yeah. And it, things swing all the time, right? Like everything just moves like this. Everything's on a, on a curve. You have industrial does really well and then really bad. You have self-storage does really well and really right. bad. And commercial is just, it's office space especially is up for uh, trouble. Yeah. And uh, yeah, maybe there'll be opportunity. And I think we'll also see a lot of con- more conversion. Yeah. Uh, things like, okay, we're going to turn that into... Because that's hard, right? How do you turn an office into self-storage? It's expensive. It's hard. It takes a lot of knowledge. Great. There's opportunity there because yep. Americans aren't buying less crap. We're that's still buying true. more. So self-storage, I think, has a lot of runway ahead of it, depending again on the market. But it's going to yeah. be interesting times. Yeah, I agree. You know, the other thing, yeah, speaking of California, I saw a headline the other day, probably just triggering for me because we own some property there, but <laughs> it was like they want you to pay your electrical utilities based on your income as opposed to usage. Really? <laughs> I just thought, what's yeah. next? Yeah, At least you guys no. are creative. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're grasping right oh now. Oh, my that's, Lord. Yeah. yeah. Well, I remember about a year ago, I was saying on some podcast somewhere that California is in trouble, is going to, you know, have. I didn't say bankruptcy, but I said, you know, I think they're going to have material issues. And this was when California was in a big surplus. And people were like, look at the numbers. No. And I'm like, you guys, we have to look forward in the future slightly. Uh, I think people keep forgetting second and third order effects. But with 10% of the population actually being the the main payers for 80% of the tax bill, when those top 10% leave, you have material change in a uh, city, state within a very rapid period, aka one year. And, uh, and that's what we've seen in California. And I think why Texas is booming, but you know, I think you're right. There's going to be a lot of opportunity, especially for people that don't have an investment hangover. So if you haven't done a bunch of bad investments the last, however many years, 10 years, you're probably sitting pretty. But I, I, I also, you know, I think why I'm so positive on, on buying boring businesses, and I don't really care what people do. I think whatever you want to learn as your area of expertise, I like businesses because you can have so many variations of them. But why I like businesses is because inflation happens. Well, you increase your prices. You have a problem with access to certain types of things that you need for your business, supplies in the underlying business. Well, that's just one revenue line of yours. It's very seldom do we have the whole supply chain you know, that is broken. With businesses too, you can actually materially increase your profits and your total revenue. Whereas with real estate, you can do that with value add, obviously upfront, but it's hard to do continuously year after year Correct. where you could hundred X your business. Now there's more risk in business. I think they could go away. It's not a hard asset always two sides of the coin, but I'd really like to see people have both. So if you're a realtor right now, I think you're crazy for not having a property management business yeah. because that property management business, its revenue kind of goes like this. You know, you see it just tick up slowly while your real estate portfolio, if you're transactional, let's say, where you're out there buying and selling houses and flipping them like a lot of people were, your holdings go like this, right? And so I had a lot of friends lose tens of millions of dollars or all of their wealth in 08 because they were transactional real estate brokers. And I think you should either hold it like you guys do, where you're investing and collecting the rent or buy a property management company or something that could be a satellite to your core real estate or transactional business. And it doesn't have to be very hard. And so that's a big thing that I'm focusing upon. That's really good. Well, let's talk about boring businesses. You've Mm -hmm. mentioned, you know, some of the examples already, car washes, or you said an accounting firm, like 
why focus on boring businesses? Why not focus on like the next big tech startup, you know, the Silicon Valley stuff? Yeah, they lose money. That's why. <laughs> I, I want a, Easy, done. Podcast done. over. Is, podcast over. Yeah, I done. want a profitable business yep. because I think most humans, what do we all want? We want to hang out with our kids. Yeah. We want to be able to afford a nice house. We want to go on a va- nice vacation every year. We don't want to work 80 hours a week like Elon Musk and look like he did on that yacht. Yeah. You know, We actually don't want his life. And most people don't have that idea that's like fiery and burning inside them. They would die without pursuing it. Most people actually want purpose and they want to be led. They want to have somebody else wrap them into their dream until they are ready to have their own. I think because of that, we've said, oh gosh, well, I either won't start a startup because I don't have that big, scary dream that I could live on a couch and work 80 hours a week for like Elon did, et cetera. Or we say, I'm going to just stay in a job forever because of it. And my idea is instead, why don't we transition the 11.5 million small businesses that are out there that are moving from baby boomers to the next generation and have you own some of those businesses because they're looking for a new leader and a new home? And why don't you instead learn how to transition and take over a business as opposed to start one? And if we don't do that, we become like Japan, where people are giving away businesses for free, where they think they will have an economic crisis due to not having enough owners in the business. And so I think it's a core imperative for us as a country, but also for us as individuals to figure out ownership. Because, you know, you live in a community. There's a coffee shop across the way. We're in an artist studio right now. Every single thing that you go and frequent is run by a human that spends their life in the pursuit of the thing that you go to for five minutes a day. And if we have a bunch of humans who just want to be solopreneurs, who just want to do the bare minimum, who don't want to actually have ownership and skin in the game, then BlackRock, KKR, all the big guys own everything and we become a nation of serfs. Most people get driven by things like, this will make you rich. So fine, we could say it this way. You could buy a boring business for $0 that makes more money than your salary and you could learn how to do it in 12 months. You know, in our group, it takes on average nine to 11 months for people to buy a business that replaces a six-figure income. We've proved it over the last two years, had $95 million in profit bought. It is totally doable. And I don't say that so you join our mastermind. We have a wait list. We have plenty of people in there. I say that because I think that if we don't do this, we are going to be a, a group of humans who don't have a lot of say. You know, you know this in the single family space. 2022, 24% of all transactions in single families were done by institutions. Yeah. So now your neighbor doesn't even own their home. Yep. What if you don't also own your neighborhood business? Then you have a bunch of Starbucks and you've been to a Starbucks, dirty on the outside, dirty on the inside, bartender doesn't know your name and they wish you weren't even there instead of the neighborhood coffee shop that you actually know the owner and probably their kid goes to school next to you. And so that's why I think we should buy boring businesses. Yeah. I legit worry that we are an economy, like we are headed towards an economy where it just, there's a few companies that own everything. It's just Blackstone or whatever they like. I mean, good on them. They know how to run a business. That's why they're good at what they do because they were like, hey, we're going to learn how to run a business. But if we can teach regular people how to run a business, now it's not just going out to shareholders. But yeah, I I definitely worry America's headed towards this idea of a few companies own everything. Yeah, we don't want that. I mean, the the thing about concentrated power is one, when any of us gets power, we don't like to give it back. And two, concentrated power basically means that we have decision-making in the hands of the few, and their goals and interests will be so far off from ours, it'll be hard to reconcile the two. You as a community member want something very different from your local businesses than Blackstone does. Blackstone will never step foot in your office 
or in the coffee shop located next door. The CEO is not going to, and not because he's a bad guy, but because his incentive alignment is in shareholders and profit and yours is in services to your local community. And so I think for the first time ever, there's this big generational wealth transfer and we should make sure that people close to our homes are buying the local communities that we have. Well, let's go, you know, we have a segment of the show I want to transition to. Uh, it, the, the idea is I want you to teach something in seven minutes. You got seven minutes to teach how to do something specifically. And I would love if you could share how to, and I'm going to set a timer. We got seven minutes to teach somebody who's brand new to this, yeah. how to buy a boring business. Oh yeah. Does that sound good? Yeah. The, What's the name that, of this thing? I always forget the name of this. Seven. You, you look at me. I know I'm looking at Alex. Yeah. Seven minutes seven, in seven heaven. Minutes, seven minutes that? in heaven. We should call it seven minutes in heaven. That would be. <laughs> Isn't that where you go in the closet and <laughs> yeah, kiss somebody? Yeah. You go and kiss somebody in the closet for seven oh, minutes. Yeah. We're not. <laughs> okay, seven steps. Yeah, Alex I'm, says no. Yeah, if you had to take seven steps, and we're gonna put stopwatch on, wait, timer. So if you had to take buying a business and mm-hmm. into roughly seven steps, we'll you can do it in seven minutes. How do we do it? Ready, go. Okay. Okay. Uh, well, I don't like rules, so I'm gonna do it in ten steps. <laughs> okay, let's hear it. But we'll do it in less than seven minutes. Okay. Step one, you guys are already there. This is what I call foundation. You understand that there is the ability to buy small, boring businesses to do it with zero to very little money down, and that it is possible. So we're already at step one. Congratulations, you've moved forward to step two. Perfect. Step two is deal clarity. So that means what is a good deal for Brandon and Cody? Where is it located? What type of business? How much does it cost? How much does it make? We get really clear on what a business looks like for you that is a win, because there's no such thing as a good business to buy. There's just a good business for you. For you and me, we probably don't want a business that only makes us $30,000 a year. That's not a win. But for my first business, that would have been amazing. And so you need to figure out what that win looks like for you. That's deal clarity. Step three is origination, which is a fancy word for finding deals and businesses. And basically in origination, there's 12 steps we teach or I teach. But if I was to give you a few, this is how do you find businesses to buy? We could give you a few websites to go to. You could go to Biz by Sell. You could go to e-commerce flippers. You could go to Flippa. All of these sites sell small or have bought small businesses for sale that are a marketplace not dissimilar to Redfin, Zillow, or MLS. That's step one of origination. Now you could do another one, which is my personal personal favorite. It's called my PL review. And that's where I look at all the things that I spend money on and I categorize them by one, can I get to the owner of this business? Jeff Bezos doesn't pick up my phone calls yet. But if it's my local landscaper, he, I could probably get to. Step two is would I like to run this type of business? I don't really want to run a tobacco shop, right? But maybe I would be interested in running or owning a local coffee shop. And step three is, is this business profitable? So you start to get to know the owner. You start to talk to them about their problems in their small business. And as you get to know them, you start to say, oh, like this is an awesome business. You do such a good job. Is this profitable? What's happening? I own another business. You know, do you make, and you try to get them to start moving towards this idea of does it make enough money? And then can you get them to sell? Um, But that's step three origination. Step four is due diligence. Due diligence is a fancy word for underwriting like you guys do. But basically it means, is this business a good business to buy? And what do I mean by good? I mean, are the things that you've been told about this business true as represented by, I don't know, tax returns, what the P&L actually says? Can you go in and check the underlying contracts from employees? So inside of this step, you're basically trying to figure out, is the owner of the business right now lying to you or not? Or is he lying to himself about what the business is? 
Next step, we have financing. So, okay, he's not lying to me. I like this business. I want to buy it. I've found this business. How do I get the money? I don't have any money. Lots of different ways to do it, but I teach three. The first, seller financing. 60% of all businesses sold are sold with some aspect of seller financing. And that basically just means the seller pays you from future profits to buy the business. Um, The second one is SBA loans. The government will allow you to use loans from them to purchase up to 90% of the purchase price of the business. And the third is raising OPM. That's doing a syndication like you guys do, asking friends and family in order to put some money down to buy this business. After financing, we have structuring. So how do you structure a deal? In real estate, they're oftentimes structured really similarly. In buying a business, you can structure a deal 37 ways from sideways. Same thing with real estate. Your price and my terms or my terms and your price. You don't get both. Typically, I want terms, not price. And so this is where you negotiate and we teach you how to structure you know, this underlying uh, transaction. So businesses, typically, you're looking for profit and revenue numbers. And we talk about specifics on structuring the deal. The next layer is negotiation. And this is where we get into what should a business cost? Typically, small businesses sell for two to five X profits, not revenue. So you really want to get to profits, or sometimes it's called SD&E, seller's discretionary earnings, to figure out what the business is actually making, putting in the owner's pocket each year. Typically, I pay two to five X that. The next step is closing. So now we have the business, we've negotiated it, we've got all the paperwork. How do we close the deal? Do we have our deal team there, accountant, attorney, et cetera, that's going to help us close and make sure we have all the right paperwork so nothing legally goes sideways? And then lastly is uh, the first 90 days. So what do you do once you've taken over the business? The first 90 days. Oh, I forgot step three. Inside of after deal clarity, it's selling you. So before you negotiate, you have to think that you're taking over somebody's baby right? Somebody's business that they've poured their heart and soul Mm. into. And so how do you not say things like, hi, I want to come in and buy your business. I think it's worth about two to five X profit. So about $200,000, let's close this. And instead you want to softly get them to a point of why you should be the shepherd of this thing that they have created and why they should want to work with you on closing this transaction and transitioning the business. And those are your 10 steps to buy a business. So good. All right. A couple of questions that came up during that. First of all, would you buy a portion of a business? Like, are you into like, I'm going to buy 30%, 50%, 51%. Like, where do you, or you have to be hundred. Where do you see that? Totally personal preference. There is something I call the tyranny of the middle. So if you think about it, you've got private equity, which means buyouts. They buy the whole damn thing. That's typically where you make the most money over time. Private equity has the highest returns of any asset class. Then you have venture capital, which is like, I own 1% of the company, very, very small percentage of the company. The middle is anything that's not 100% buyout and not, let's call it 5% or less. And the tyranny of the middle can be problematic because when you own 100% of the company, you have control. You can make it do what you want. You have a ton of skin in the game. When you own 1% to 5% of the company, you have a big portfolio. So you're kind of like, I hope Brandon does a good job. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to give Brandon some cash and then I'm going to be like... Good luck, man. I'll help like kind of a little bit, but like I got 87 other of you. So it's basically just shotgun approach. And can I have a big enough portfolio that's smart enough with my first dollars in as opposed to growing the business myself? The tyranny of the middle is when you own like 10, 20, 30% of the business, you don't have control. You probably have material amount of money tied up in it. And eventually, as often happens, you wish that they were doing something different or 
Oh, that was our time. We, we did it. We did it though. Good. Or we- you wish that you didn't have to spend that much time with them because they're not material enough for you. So be careful of the middle. That makes a lot of sense. All right. And then how easy are SBA loans to actually get? Is this one of those like pipe dreams? Like it'd be great if you can, get, but I mean, it sounds great, right? 90% financing for a business. Like what do you got to do to be able to get one of those? They're simple. They're not easy. Okay. So yep. there is a path to getting an SBA loan that's very doable. Lots of people have SBA loans. They are not easy in that they can feel like a colonoscopy, right? It's like <laughs> you need to have the tax returns. You need to have the business plan. You have to work with your broker on it. Or I'm sorry, your, your lender on it, as well as usually the broker for the business. So they are work for sure. They aren't like, um, I'm trying to think of another loan type that's, you know, everybody talks about, but are really hard to get. It's not like a securities loan where you can only really get them if you have, you know, millions of dollars at a company and then on your, your securities that you own. An SBA loan is totally doable. It's more about, is the business loanable or is the business not? Mm-hmm. Less about you, Brandon. All right. Well, let me pick your brain on this. This is free consulting for Brandon Day. I this love is, it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So there's a, a small business that I stumbled across and it was started with a domain name search that I want a domain name. I find the business. I'm not in the space at all uh, in any way, shape, or form, but I really like the space. And I see tremendous opportunity in this because, I mean, the guy hasn't updated his website since 2004. He's owned the domain name for 30 years, something like that. It was like early, like 1990, he bought the domain name. So like, I mean, this has been around forever. It's got the strength. It's got everything going for it, right? So I contact the guy and I'm like, hey, would you want to sell? Because again, I really just wanted the domain name, but I thought, why not buy the domain? You know, maybe I yeah. could buy the business too. I'm like, would you sell the domain name without the business? No. Would you sell the whole business? Yeah, actually. And the perfect example, the guy's 65 years old. Kids don't care about the business at all. Yep. He runs it. He's like, you know, he's his baby. He's been doing it for 40 years. Like it was a, it was a brick and mortar that went online, yep. all this stuff, right? Then he says to me, I'm thinking in my head, just based on the ugly website, I'm like, this is, you know, maybe it's a million bucks, whatever. He said, uh, we did 10 million in sales. He said 10 million in sales last year. And I'm like, well, shoot. So now I'm thinking, okay, it's probably in the profit-wise, let's call it two to five million dollar range. Yeah. So now this is like now it's like a business. This might be 10 to 30 million dollars, right? Yeah. So the question I have is A, I gotta shepherd, I gotta tell him that I'm the guy to shepherd his business, right? right? He even tells me this is not a business you can run from the internet by yourself. You gotta work at the warehouse every day, packing and shipping these boxes yeah. and like very classic, like, right? How do I get from where I am now with this guy wants me to move to his area to shepherd it in person? Yep. I also don't know the financials yet. He's yep. not, he doesn't trust me enough to do that. How do I get from here to close in on this thing if mm, I wanted this? What good. would you do? Well, a couple things. I have a strategy called SOWS which is basically I like to buy stale, old, weak, simple businesses. Mm. And so this is is exactly that. Yeah. You know, this business doesn't have a lot of innovation and technology. It's yeah. been around for a long time. Its competition sounds like it's pretty weak if yep. they can still compete. And it's simple enough for you to understand and integrate into it. Yeah. So great. You hit all the aspects. The way that you get there, I found, is something you're already very good at. So you should be really good at acquisitions, which is largely a lot of curiosity. Like, it's almost just like dating. Like all you want to do is you want to get to know this guy. And how do you play the game of dating? You're like not over eager. You're almost sort of, it's the hot chick at the bar. Like you don't go straight up to her and go, Hey, I think you're awesome. I'd love to take you on a date or take you home or whatever I could possibly do with you. (laughs) You know, you kind of like, Hey, maybe you talk to her friends, you talk to them. You're really, so the way that I would do this with this business owner would be, you've already sort of talked about, would you sell this business? 
I would sort of say, hey, I don't want to move fast on this. Like, I want to get to know you. This is really, you're almost like you want the business really bad, but you're almost telling them, oh, I don't want the business that bad. But you're doing it a really lovely way. You're like, I don't buy just any business. I buy businesses with owners that fit my mission and sort of vision for where our company is going long-term. I think you might be one of them, but I really would like to get to know you and a business in a non-invasive way. You're super busy. You have a lot going on. I got a lot going on. And so I'd love to just kind of like spend some time with you. And by spend some time, business owners are busy, so they don't want that much time. So you kind of go, you want to glean all the information as possible from him. So when he says you can't run this unless you live here, you go, oh yeah, you're right. Your buyer probably, you can only sell to somebody who's like immediately located in your area. That's actually a great point for you. By the way. So he's like counterselling the size of it. Yeah, yeah. You go, oh yeah. Oh man, I'm looking at this. I don't know. Yeah. It seems like you got to be super local. So you're, you're kind of like this little game. And so you said, tell me what else, tell me why else like it won't work to sell me your business. Like, tell me what else is tough about it. Tell, like, let's be super honest about all of this stuff. I'll tell you whatever you want to know about me. I'm all over the internet, but I'm happy to like share whatever you want. And you're sort of playing this game of getting information like this. My, one of my close friends, John basically says, you don't want to be good. You want to be liked. And that's really important in, in selling and buying these businesses. And you're already quite good at that. So your game is really, you just want to get to know this guy. And at the end of the day, you say to him, hey, listen, there's very few builders in the world. Like you're one of them. I think I'm one of them. So if the worst case scenario that comes out of this is that you and I know each other as other builders in the world, and I get to be a resource to you and you to me, that's a win. And you tell me some of the stuff that you're struggling with in your business, and I connect you to a few people because you have a giant network and that would be easy for you. That's a win for me. And that's where I would start. And so I would say, like, I don't want your financials. I don't, I don't want any of this right now because it doesn't really matter if like you and I don't connect and you make it personal. And then after you've had like a phone call or two on that, or if you can visit him, always the better, then you start going to, you know what? I really do not want to waste your time. And so what I'd love to do is I'd love to send you an NDA. I will sign it and I won't share anything about what we're talking about. This NDA will be one page. It'll take you zero time to look at it, but you'll make sure that you're covered because nobody wants to read a 47 page NDA. And then you go, as soon as I do that, what I'd love to do is just, you can share with me your ballpark financials. Like doesn't have to be clean. Oftentimes these aren't in a business. Let's just make sure that what you have fits what I would even need. And if not, again, we'll be buds but I won't waste a bunch of your time. And so you're kind of playing this game of like push, pull, push, pull. And that would be my next step for you. To be 100% honest, when I look at this list, like, I mean, I'm, I'm a smart enough guy. I could probably figure out how to buy his business. What yeah. actually stopped me there was the fear of buying a business that was 10 to $30 million. Yeah. And I'm like, even though I can buy a $30 million apartment complex, in fact, like the, that's the minimum size I would ever look at for an yep. apartment would be 30 million. That's no problem. But all of a sudden, a $30 million business, the fear came in there, which is interesting to like introspectively look at myself in this situation. And I have a million excuses. Oh, he didn't want to give me this financial. Oh, he said I had to move here. I mean, this is a year ago this conversation happened and I've not yeah. pursued it. Why? One word, fear. Yeah. Right? And I'm, I'm not even afraid of things. I always say, I don't have fear. I, don't, but I do, right? Yeah. It's interesting. Like, how do you overcome that? Well, I think that's one of the reasons why private equity firms typically have partners mm. and why we created a group. What I would say to you is just like you do in your communities, you want to get with other people that are buying businesses because then it's going to become hyper-normalized and just like anything else. I mean, we have a guy, Renan, who bought an $8 million business. He was a W-2 all the way up before this for $0 down, 100% seller financing and came with a manager that's already operating the business and he didn't know the guy before. So we got a $0 business 
basically, that does $8 million a year, and I think he pockets two yeah, of that. That's like, that's wild. But if you had met Renan and you had seen him go through this process and, like, touched his hand and known him and then talked to him about it and then talked to him about your deal, you'd be like, oh, this isn't as weird as I thought it was, right? Yeah. If you just hear that on the internet, you're like, I don't know. So that would be my recommendation is you get around a bunch of people that are buying these and you realize this is really not very hard yeah. at all. The only part that you want to be careful of for you is just that you have somebody operationally to help you run it. That's really big because it would be a deterrent for some of your other stuff. And then I do think it helps to have either an accountability buddy or for what I use is my accountant and my attorney to help with due diligence. Yeah. And I just say this year, I'm going to spend 100K, let's say. That's a lot for like maybe a lot of people listening, but if if you do underwriting and due diligence a lot and you're doing a $10 million transaction, it's not that much. So you could say, I'm going to spend 1000 or I'm going to spend 100000 this year and I'm going to do it on having pros help me analyze some businesses. That's really good. And then that's going to take, because it's fear, but it's it's not just fear of failing, I would assume. It's fear of like, where am I going to fit this in my day? I already am doing seven podcasts. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And also fear of what's going to happen when I take this over? Can I actually run this thing? Yeah. And so if you have a few of those people in there, don't let just fear stop you. Find It's got a name. The name is fear of time up front. The name is fear of time down back. You know, like name it and then you can find a solution for it. That's great. That's just great advice for anybody struggling with just fear is name that fear. What is it you're afraid of? And now it, you can figure out a solution to it. Yeah. I need right. to take my own advice sometimes on that. <laughs> yeah. It's easier to say this on a podcast. Harder to do. You should do this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. So I want to start moving toward the end here. I got a few final questions I like to wrap up with. First one is, what are three things? You know, this is called A Better Life uh, with Brandon Turner. It's a Better Life podcast. We're the Better Life tribe. We're all about just living a better life. And that largely comes down to the, the daily actions that we do, right? But also the beliefs we hold, uh, the people we surround ourselves in, they give us that better life, right? So what are three things? When I say three, it could be beliefs, tactics, actions, people, three things that you've done in the past year that has given you a better life. We have a motto at Contrarian Thinking that is civilize the mind, make savage the body, build the bank account. It's sort of what I call the three-part pyramid of freedom. Each year, my husband and I, when we come up with our goals, we have something in each of those categories. So civilize the mind this year meant something different for each one of us. But to me, it meant that I was going to spend a ton of time on philosophy. So I have a part of my plan this year that I'm reading sort of 12 books on some of the great thinkers this year. I want to tame that beast inside my mind, right? The second is make savage the body. So I probably like many of, of people listening, like, it's like, where's the time? Like, I don't have the time to go to the gym for 47 hours and do all these butt lift things because I'd like to have a nice butt and like, you know, not drink ever because nobody does that anymore. And then also only eat kale. Like, it's a lot. And so for make savage the body, I got with my team and said, where could I insert fitness into already the things that I do? And so I said, we're going to start creating fitness content, even though I don't know what I'm doing in fitness at all, because I'm going to integrate it in my business and that way I have no excuse. So that's my make savage the body ideas. We have these content videos that we're going to do collaborations with pros and it's going to be my excuse to do like, you know, a workout with badasses once a week. Yeah. And then the third is build the bank account. So each year we have a monetary goal and we usually have a monetary goal to your point that's for others. So the others doesn't have to mean charity. It could mean in my mind, I put a goal aside for people. So like when I find an exceptional human, I want to fund them. I want to hire them. That's part of my build the bank account because I know that will ripple. And then the other side of that is what do we want to make as a couple and a family? And one of the big things we want to do is when we're 40, we want to take a year off entirely if we can, because maybe we have a kid by then. 
And I want to have the freedom in my business to do that, not just monetarily, but systems and processes. So civilize the mind, make savage the body, build a bank account, and then I do something in each of them. That's wonderful. Have you read uh, uh, Clockwork, Mike Michalowicz? No. So he wrote Profit First, which is his famous book. But no, I have to write it down. Yeah, Clockwork's really good because what, what he says in there is your business should run like Clockwork. It should run uh-huh. with systems and whatever. And the uh-huh. challenge he gives people is take a month off every year, an entire month, 30 days. And if you can't do that, you don't have a business, right? You have a job. And so book was good, but that lesson stuck with me. Could I take a year off? And the answer is no, not not right now, but I'm yeah. close. Like yeah. with each of my business, I just have too many businesses. What I was saying earlier is I'm... I'm five hours a week. I'm like the four-hour work week guy. I just do it with 10 businesses and so exactly. I'm at 40 hours a week sometimes. Yeah. All right. Uh, speaking of books, though, next question. So I, I have a phrase that I use all the time. It's called a pivot moment in your life where your mm-hmm. life's going one direction and moves another way. And then there's a pivot book. Huh? A pivot book is a book you read and it changed the direction of your life maybe a little bit. So I'm wondering, what are three pivot books in your life, things that you've read that have changed the direction of your life a little bit? Maybe a lot of people have heard this one, but I'm divorced and remarried. And uh, and I remember when I was going through my divorce, I took two things from the house. I took Atlas Shrugged and I took Pablo Neruda's book and his biography. And he's one of my favorites, Chilean poet, like wild life that he's had, but also just beautiful verbiage and the way he explains everyday living. And so I took those two things. And I think the pivot book for me was was Atlas Shrugged because it wasn't for what people make that book out to be today, which is like, screw the little guy, we're big timers, you know, whatever it was. There are lines in that book that talk about the joy of working for the sake of it and that pursuit and purpose and how you can lose yourself in the thing that you're supposed to be doing in your life. And I felt that very many times in my career. And I wanted to remind myself that I was capable of that. So that was the first one. The second book for me, it might have been a, a book called Shadow of the Wind, which is a fiction book by one of my favorite authors that I'm now going to forget his name live because that's what we do. <laughs> um, but if you could look up Shadow of the Wind, he, he's a Spanish author and I'm totally blanking on I'm his gonna, name. I'm going to get his name right now. Go oh, ahead. you're going to nail it for me. Great. Thank uh-huh. you. So anyway, so this book is so beautiful. It, Carlos, um, it remi- Ruiz. Carlos Ruiz Zafon. Okay. Yeah, that's it. So he is uh, a Spanish contemporary writer, I think is one of those books that you lose yourself reading overnight if you love literature and fiction. And what it reminded me is, is the power of words. And so for a long time, I thought money was the only power. And I was really in finance and I was really focused on growing the bank account. And I forgot that there's extreme power in pen, just like there's power in, in zeros. And he reminded me of that. And then I think the third book, you know, cliche, but I actually reread it again the other week and I found it profound again was the four hour work week, yeah. Tim Ferriss. I love that book. So yeah. It is kind of a cliche answer, but it's, it's a lasting book for a reason. Yeah. And it's worth going back to actually, because like you said, like the clockwork book, you know, I think there's portions of that book that just remind you small things like the power of first determining, should I even do this thing? And only then automating in a world where everyone's obsessed with chat GPT. It was useful for me because everybody's like automate, automate, automate. And what you should first do is eliminate. And he talks about that. Yeah. I think he has that structure inside of his book. And so those three would be my pivot books. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, speaking of AI, I don't want to get you out of here before we talk about that. What do you think about AI? <laughs> I mean, well, my husband, actually, he plays in defense AI land right now. I'm of multiple minds of it. One, there's the reality that we're in, which is that AI is proliferating and going to grow continuously. And so anytime you can see a massive upswell, I think you should try to spend some time to figure it out. So I'm by no means an expert, but we're spending time thinking about how it could apply to our day-to-day. 
like if I just talk about chat GPT, I think someone was talking about the correlation between sexlessness in the US, something like 30% of men have not had sex in the US inside of the last year, and increasingly women and childlessness. What I thought was interesting about that is they were saying there was a correlation between when like the dating apps, Tinder and et cetera, came into proliferation. What were they supposed to do? They were supposed to make human connection, dating, romance, eventually marriage, probably sex too, easier. And in fact, what they did is something else. They did something else entirely. And so one of the things about AI that I'm really thoughtful about is what are the second and third order effects that we don't think about? With ChatGPT, I can tell right now when a member of my team uses ChatGPT to write a subject line. And let me tell you what, they're shitty. Subject lines are awful. They all sound exactly the same. Why? Because everybody's putting in the same inputs so they get the same output. I think it can be really, really lazy. And so be careful because what did Tinder and Bumble and all of that do? They made people bad at dating and lazy. And because of that, they actually decreased the likelihood that they were going to have sex. They decreased the likelihood that they could have real engagement with humans in life. And I think ChatGPT could do the exact same thing. So use it, but use it with intelligence. I think, especially in my world, which is just writing, they talk about how it's going to take over writing for everyone. And right now, this is a little bit inappropriate of, a, of an example, but we had this newsletter we had come out that was about landscaping. And so it was a tree trimming landscaping business, right? My team came up with a bunch of subject lines and the subject lines were like, this guy made $50,000 in 30 days trimming a tree or you know, tree trimming equals dollars, right? It was very standard chat GPT answers. And I hated all of them. So I immediately wrote back and said, these are all awful. You know, come up with something better. Think asymmetric. Nothing immediately related to what this article is about. And they couldn't do it. Why? Because they had primed themselves to have bad answers. Tony Robbins taught us all about priming. Priming is just, you want to prime your body, right? Jumping on his little trampoline thing before he goes out on stage. And you're doing the same thing when you're a writer. And so I, before I write, I go read something totally unrelated. I might read Chuck Palahniuk, Fight Club. I read something totally different. And so my subject line, I'm like, okay, pick your best one, you guys. So they picked their best one. They all said, Cody, you're crazy. This is good. I go, great. Here's mine. I love guys with wood, dot, dot, dot. (laughs) Which one outperformed? Of course, mine, because it was so asymmetric and it was not ChatGPT would never have come up with. And so that is what worries me about AI. Yeah. Yeah. Chat GPT is, I found the same thing. Whenever we use it for anything, copywriting, subject lines, anything like that, it's not good yet. People think it is and it's going to be good, right? It's going to get there, but it just does not have that soul that we have to come up with the, I like guys with wood. Like that's just, it doesn't have that yet. Maybe eventually, but I think it's a good, it's a good yeah, first, first draft. It might get you thinking and brainstorming and maybe there's some case there yeah. if it doesn't kill us all first. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. This has been amazing. Thank you for coming on today. Where can people best find you, follow you? Where do you want them to follow you at? I think YouTube is one of the most powerful things we're doing lately. Mm. So you guys, if you guys aren't on YouTube, follow us, uh, Cody Sanchez, C-O-D-I-E on YouTube. And then contrarianthinking.co is our free newsletter. Super in-depth pieces on ways to monetize that you probably haven't thought of. All right. I love it. Well, thank you very much. Appreciate you. Thanks for having me. And that is the show. Thank you everyone for tuning in to another episode of A Better Life with Brandon Turner. I hope you enjoyed the insights and the wisdom uh, brought to you today on this show. If you found value in this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and a review on your favorite podcast platform. Uh, Your feedback actually does help us improve the show. We look at the feedback, I look at the feedback, and we can reach more people with our message of living a better life. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Follow me on social, Beardy Brandon. And hey, before I go, 
This show is all about the habits, actions, and beliefs that can give you a better life. But in case you're interested and you want to know my opinion on what it takes to live the best life ever, and that includes some of my kind of weird spiritual beliefs maybe, check out abetterlife.com slash bestlife, abetterlife.com slash bestlife. Thank you again for listening, and I will see you next time on A Better Life with Brandon Turner.